0: Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and thanks for joining me on the Create the Future podcast, brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Even if you've not grown up in America, many people have heard of Bill Nye, the science guy, the writer and presenter of a 100-episode educational TV series that only ran for five years in the 90s, but it won 19 Emmy Awards and is still watched today. Since then, he's continued hosting shows as well as writing books, presenting the Science Rules podcast and doing the odd cameo in a Disney film. But perhaps what's less well known is that this science guy is a mechanical engineer. He's an ideas guy, an inventor, with an easily recognizable dress code, too. And it's a bow tie. So, Bill, I'm going to have to ask you, even though we're doing a podcast and we're 6,000 miles apart and we can't see each other, you're going to have to tell me, are you wearing your bow tie? No comment.
1: Uh, However, (laughs) I just want to point out that when I wear a bow tie – I also, it's my policy, I also wear a shirt. I think it would just be,
0: it would be frightening uh, for people. I can't imagine anyone wearing a bow tie without a shirt, though, to be honest.
1: Now, come on. There's a whole business of guys in Las Vegas, the thing, the... Ladies show up and scream at the dancers. What's the name of the? Chippendale. Chippendale?
0: Oh, Chippendales. Oh well, there, there you go. That's a, an opportunity missed then on on my oh, part. Well, so.
1: when the pandemic is over, you can make the trip. You'd be very welcome.
0: <laughs> when did you start wearing that bow tie?
1: Uh, in high school. So we, there was a there is a thing in my high school where the boys are the waiters, the servers at the girls' athletic banquet. This is where. The young women receive their awards for gymnastics, lacrosse, which we play in the States, uh, soccer, soccer, football. And so the boys are the waiters. And I said to my colleagues, you know, if we're going to be waiters, let's dress like waiters. So my father was uh, very skilled with knots. He showed me how to tie a bow tie. And uh, you'll find if you've ever worked in a restaurant or served ladies at the girls' athletic banquet, bow ties are very practical. They don't. They don't uh, slide onto the serving tray. They don't slip into your soup. They don't flop into your flask in the laboratory. And so, it just that just became a thing. It's just <laughs> now. That's just all I wear.
0: It's interesting that something just clicks with somebody, and and you bring that through, and has have sort of made it into something that's always associated with with you. Now, what was your first memory? of enjoying something that either you realize at the time or when you look back on it, you think, ha, huh, there was a potential engineer there because that that I loved was all about engineering.
1: Well, uh, I made a boat, a very small boat. Um, let's see. In U.S. units, it would be a little over a foot long. It would be 35, 40 centimeters long. And It floated. I mean, this is fantastic. And I also had a sense that it had to do with displacement. This is to say the boat weighs as the amount of water displaced, pushed out of the way is the, exactly the same as the weight of the boat, which is really a heck of an insight. That was moving. you know. To, to me, engineering is using science to solve problems and make things. Engineers make things. That's what is really appealing to me.
0: And did you go on then from making a a model boat to making other things? I
1: became fascinated with bicycles. I spent a lot of time on bicycles and all the mechanisms, uh, how they fit together, the the ultimate look of them. You know, it's important to me in the world of bicycles that they look good as well as function. And so uh, I took my bicycle apart, had a little trouble getting it back together, but eventually... With the help of a neighbor who worked at a bike shop, I got it back together. And then it, the whole thing just became fascinating. And if you don't think airplanes are fascinating, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, airplanes are just fantastic.
0: I'm a big fan, actually. Big fan. I used to be taken to airports, a local airport in Liverpool when I was young because it was considered a treat because we liked it so much to watch the planes. To just oh, they plane amazing. These so things much. weigh
1: tons. <laughs> yes. They weigh dozens of tons. And they they don't fall down. They, they fly. It's just fantastic. Now, with the pandemic, this business of fluid mechanics, the, the motion of air, anything that flows in, in physics or engineering is a fluid. Air is a fluid. Water is a fluid. Mercury, quicksilver is a fluid. Anyway, uh, the motion of air turns out to be very, very important in understanding this pandemic and dealing with
0: were you encouraged by your parents when you were younger to to sort of go with this natural curiosity? Because I was interested to read that in separate ways, your parents are, have a fascinating background that crosses over with what you do now.
1: Well, sure. So my father referred to himself as Ned Nye Boy Scientist. That was one of his <laughs> <laughs> sobriquets, self self titled. Because uh, he, he liked astronomy, especially. He was quite the amateur astronomer. And uh, he uh, got involved with finding and restoring what are called the boundary stones around Washington, D.C. So I grew up in the city of Washington, D.C. I didn't grow up in the Maryland or Virginia suburbs. I grew up in, in the city limits. And my father did as well. And so it turns out that a freed man he was not a slave. He had bought his own freedom. A guy named Benjamin Banneker uh, was hired by the famous U.S. statesman George Washington to survey the city of Washington. And every mile, uh, Benjamin Banneker arranged for this boundary stone to be placed. And the precision with which he did it is really impressive, even to this day. And if you ever go to Washington, the whole thing is reckoned from something called the zero boundary stone which is between the White House and the Washington Monument right along Constitution Avenue. It was, really, it was really an insightful thing. Every machined part you get, you use today, whether it be a coffee cup or an airplane, is reckoned generally from a single point nowadays. And that was Banneker's insight. Anyway, uh, I grew up with this. My father was really into the science of astronomy and surveying and mathematics. And then my mother as you, I think you're uh, uh, alluding to, was graduated from college in 1942. So all the people, all the men in the U.S. at that time were being in, uh, conscripted, drafted to go work, to fight World War II. And simultaneously, apparently, the Army and the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy realized that there was a tremendous resource in women. And uh, my mother was recruited. The family myth is because she was good at math and science. And so I was brought up with this tradition of science. Her father, my grandfather, was a chemist, a professional chemist. He had a couple patents on a couple of adhesives. Uh, and so I was just brought up with all that stuff. And um, of course, now I'm very proud of my mother. I mean, she's just did amazing things back in the day, as we say.
0: And it's a wonderful history. It's like we have in Britain as well with the code breakers, that women were involved in that too. Yeah,
1: my mom, the US uh, phrase is my mom was one of the code girls. And so I have purchased two bricks at Bletchley Park. Uh, <laughs> you can see my mom's name on it. And uh, they show. I went out there two years ago and everybody showed me around. And it was, you know, I'm like, hey, your mom wants to go. <laughs> wow, you're cool. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. Look at this. Look at this. This is <laughs> So it was really. Uh, it was really a a very moving thing for me,
0: and also what I found moving when I I, I read it was that your father had been in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Yeah, that um, sounds
1: like fun, but uh, it sounds like it really was a drag. Oh, yeah. it <laughs> right, was so it horrible. Was, it, yeah. it was,
0: and that he was really into sundials.
1: So yeah, so the family myth. Well, this is pretty reasonable. The Japanese military had confiscated all the jewelry, which included everybody's wristwatch. And uh, so my father, in order to reckon time and to kind of, I guess, to kind of keep from going crazy, uh, became fascinated with the motion of the sun, The uh, what's called the analemma, the path of the sun as reckoned from the earth's surface. And uh, there's some mythical things, like apparently he would tell people when it was lunchtime by looking at the the shadow of a shovel handle, and the myth, which is unsubstantiated, <laughs> is he reckoned their latitude, which enabled these two guys to escape uh, from a train, a railroad car, and one of one guy injured his ankle jumping off the car. The other guy made it back to the British consulate in uh, Shanghai, and then from there. Uh, uh, back to Britain, and this was quite a thing. It's the first time anybody knew what happened to these guys. So they were on Wake Island, which you may not have ever heard of. You you go from California, you go five thousand nautical miles to Hawaii, and then you go another five thousand nautical miles to Wake. Wow. And the reason it it was the reason it still is of interest is um, the Boeing Clipper airplane. This is the flying boat would leave San, if you were a business person doing business in Asia, you'd fly from San Francisco to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and then from Hawaii to Wake and refuel on Wake, and then on to destinations in the East. And so they were all captured on uh, Christmas Eve, 1941. So he was a prisoner of war longer than anybody else from the U.S., which was, you know, it's not, it's not really a record you want to set, but it it had a great effect on him. And then I was brought up with the sundial culture. And, uh, you know, United Arab Emirates launched its Hope spacecraft en route to Mars. And Chinese uh, Space Administration launched its rocket en route to Mars. And NASA's Perseverance rover that will be fitted with another sundial. And I claim, you can evaluate this claim, <laughs> that I was in a meeting in uh, the early 2000s where we had this uh, a vertical post of metal about as big as uh, a, what we might call a golf pencil or a short cigarette that, was, that casts a shadow. And when you look at the shadow, you can infer the color of the sky. It's something that a lot of people haven't thought about. Anyway, I was in this meeting. You guys, we got to make that into a sundial. Come on, this will be great. <laughs> so Steve Squires, the principal investigator, thought about it for a couple of days and went, okay. So we uh, will electronically put our lines on it and engage generally students around the world in reckoning time on Mars.
0: So when did the sundial first go up to, to uh, Mars then?
1: Yeah. Um, 2003, it landed in 2004 on the, uh, on the Spirit rover. The so it's so rather lovely then, to.
0: isn't it, to know that you've got oh, man, um, had an it, influence on something on another oh, planet. <laughs> oh, I
1: can't tell you. And this is the thing about space exploration I talk about all the time. You know, you think of the dramatic discoveries in the history of science. Generally, you know, when we talk about it in um, the Western Hemisphere, we talk about, The extraordinary accomplishments of European people. Uh, Name somebody, Isaac Newton, uh, Copernicus, Galileo. These are guys that were working by themselves, generally, or with one assistant. And they make some amazing discovery, change the course of human history. Well, in space exploration, it's a team. No one person has the capability of building a rover on Mars and a rocket big enough to get it there. There's just not, you can't do it. So it's teams of hundreds and often thousands of people that come together and not just scientists and engineers, but bean counters, you know, accountants and politicians. It's just everybody's involved to make these things happen. And so uh, to be part of that, you just have this wonderful feeling that you're part of something bigger than yourself. Absolutely. And I remind everybody, if these spacecraft, a- Arab Emirates, Chinese, European Space Agency, uh, US, NASA Space Agency, find evidence of life on Mars, it will change the course of human history. Everybody will feel differently about being a living thing on this planet. Every, everybody will be affected. and. Uh, These discoveries or this discovery has the potential being made for just a tiny fraction of any government's budget. It's really an amazing time to be alive in that regard.
0: Oh, yeah. You're preaching to the converted here. I absolutely uh, agree on that one. To me, it's not surprising then, considering you're you're surrounded, your family, you're surrounded by people who encourage and are interested in science and engineering and building things and you like making things yourself. Mechanical engineering then, which you studied at Cornell, seems the perfect choice for you. I didn't
1: realize you could be an engineer until I got a job in a bike shop, a bicycle shop. I was you know, I was 15, uh, my hands weren't very big, I wasn't very strong, I wasn't a great mechanic. But I was there and there was an older guy who was going to college at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania here in the US. And he just talked all about engineering, about how en- great engineering was. And, and I, we were in the shop and the radio was on and uh, there was an ad for, for pianos and how well-engineered these pianos were. And the word engineering came up in a radio ad about pianos. I went, wow, it's it's everywhere. gone it, it's everywhere. And so that's when I, that was, that summer was when I really decided, after I was aware there was such a thing, this was what I wanted to do. Make and did things, you enjoy it? Problems. Oh, yeah. Well, engineering school, for me, was challenging, uh, but... I got through I kept pushing myself. I just look back. I should have taken some more mess around courses, but I <laughs> I took I thought a lot you're gonna of,
0: say something else then. Yeah, I, t-
1: I took a lot of um, mathematics. I got you know, I took as much as they you could do as an undergraduate and it was okay. Uh, I had one very good professor in control systems, I gotta say, and then I um in my la- my senior year I got on the dean's list, but Sophomore year was was rough academically, but neither here nor there. When you're at this big university, Carl Sagan was teaching there, as a professor. Oh, so I'd completed my engineering requirements, and I took a freshman level astronomy course as a senior, and it was it changed my life. The guy just changed my life. You know, he was. He was very thoughtful, and he had just had a way of speaking, a way of constructing arguments. It was just fantastic. And uh, I, uh, if anybody's out there, somebody has my paper about Curlian photography. I lent it to somebody at Boeing who lent it to somebody who lent it to somebody, and it's out in the ether. So if you're out there, I would love to get that. I'll reward you. I'll pay you U.S. dollars for that thing.
0: Well, I think the offer of money is always a great incentive. So hopefully you never know what will come then of listening to this podcast and and taking part in it. You mentioned Boeing there, and and that was where you went after university uh, to work there as an engineer.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was recruited uh, because I think largely because of this professor in control system. So in mechanical engineering, by long tradition, this business of uh, control theory, it's called a thermostat for an oven, uh, cruise control for a car, an autopilot for an airplane. These have fallen to mechanical engineering. Uh, You might think it originally be electrical engineering, and it is to to be sure, but uh, control systems is a a niche within a niche, a niche within a niche. And uh, so I had a uh, a, a boss at Boeing who was looking for some control systems guys, and he hired me, and I moved to Seattle, Washington, and it was just fantastic. I mean, I <laughs> all these opportunities uh, presented themselves. I'm you've probably heard the expression "Go West, young man," mm-hmm. and uh, that's still largely true in the states. You know, uh, you think about Google and and uh, Microsoft and. Uh, Apple Computer, these are generally businesses that st- were started in the West of the
0: U.S. And you designed or invented something called a hydraulic pressure resonance suppressor. Yeah. What What does that do? What is it?
1: Speaking of uh, British people, the, there is a very well-known, beloved, little bit ornery test pilot at Boeing. So you may not have thought of it, but you might think of test pilots as fighter pilots flying around upside down under bridges. No, but uh, big airplane companies have test pilots as well. And there was this little vibration in the yoke, the steering wheel of the 747. And the 747, for you aviation historians, was the first large transport plane that was all uh, fly by cable. That is to say, there was no there was no manual rever- There is no manual reversion on a seven forty seven. This this next thing still amazes me. You know, a seven thirty seven, or a, a three nineteen, a three a three twenty Airbus. You can fly those planes just with your strength. If all the hydraulics go out, you can steer those airplanes just with your strength because of these extraordinary and just cool mechanisms in the. Control surfaces, the ailerons, rudder thing, where you use the energy of the plane moving through the air to steer it. It's very cool. Uh, anyway, seven forty-seven is the first plane that wasn't like that, and uh, it had this vibration in the yoke, and this it didn't bother most of the pilots. They didn't notice it, but this one guy just really bugged them, and so. <laughs> my boss especially decided to fix the problem. And it's the kind of thing they give to the young guy. It's an old trick, everybody. What you do is you make a length of hydraulic tubing so that the pressure wave that's going through the tube destructively interferes it up. Well, one wave's going high. You make another wave go low and you cancel it. Not, you cancel it out at certain frequencies. You make it go largely away. And we did. It's, the whole thing though is it adds weight oh my goodness you must never add weight to the airplane oh my gosh so uh you know it's a piece of tubing less than a meter long and you know, it does does the job as far as i know it's still flying but with all the advancements in um in active control systems i wouldn't be surprised if it's been eliminated and these guys we're doing a documentary about me, and we tried to track that fact down, but it just got too busy, and we didn't
0: oh. but
1: uh, someday I'll find out
0: so when did this transition happen between being a obviously a successful engineer at Boeing and then thinking more towards the sort of media entertainment side of things?
1: well well, well, ma'am, <laughs> so you got everybody in the English-speaking world. I think has heard of Steve Martin, the comedian. Yeah. And uh, so Warner Brothers Records, which was his his company, or rather the company distributing his 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 comedy albums, sponsored a Steve Martin lookalike contest because I claim that Steve Martin was so influential. He showed up at this one moment in human history where his type of humor, his absurd outlook, just struck a nerve with everybody. And uh, anyway, so they sponsored this contest and I won. I mean, with respect to the other contestants, (laughs) I won in Seattle in the the Pacific Northwest here in the US. I did not advance beyond that. And I will say the guy who ultimately won the whole thing really kind of looked like Steve Martin. <laughs> and the other thing, he played the banjo. He's quite a musician. So that aside, after that, I started trying to do stand-up comedy. I would work at my engineering job. on a, I had a big drawing board. I'd work there all day. And then I'd go home and take a nap. And then I'd go to comedy clubs and try to be funny. And that one thing led to another. And I met these two guys who were being hired by the NBC that a broad uh, television network uh, in Seattle to do a comedy show. So they invited me to start writing jokes or submitting jokes, and I did. And eventually I quit my day job, October 3rd, 1986, roughly. And uh, uh, I wanted to, to try it. I realized if I left engineering for even six months, that was the that was the most time I could leave. But that I mean now it's we all think it's of technology is just changing every five minutes. You need a new iPhone every two weeks, and the connector doesn't fit, and so on and so on. But uh, in the nineteen eighties, computers were just becoming affordable for big companies, not for individuals, but for big companies. And I realized if I left even for six months, I wouldn't make it. So I gave myself six months to try working in television, and it worked out. Here yes,
0: it certainly did. I mean, that's that's a huge shift. Had you always been into comedy, and, and, and I assume you had to write your own material?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. But I, I claim humor was valued in my family. Like, you were expected to accept the funny side of things. And I claim this is how my father got to prisoner of war camp, was having a sense of humor about it, because it sounds like it was pretty stressful. And then my mother was funny, you know, and they, and so they would, um, they would sit around and write limericks. Does that seem like a regular thing to do sit around <laughs> on a Sunday evening, writing limericks to with, together? I don't, and so uh, I grew up with that being uh, important. I have a huge advantage over many people who are trying to be funny. Why? Because why? Because I'm funny looking, see, and so on. So I uh, must
0: admit, I have looked at pictures of you when young on the internet, and there's a little bit around the eyes that you do look a bit like Steve Martin.
1: <laughs> but uh, the rest of it, to,
0: he got to the, meet
1: me a few years ago. But the rest of, of, the rest of it,
0: thing. I I didn't quite see. <laughs> so right, well. so yeah, I suppose you had to be a, have a sense of humor to go in, in for that.
1: Well, the idea of the Steve Martin work contest was to tell his jokes. I mean, that's the way I <laughs> interpret it. No, ah, I mean, yeah. right.
0: no, 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 it wasn't. Like if
1: you, um, if you, go, very popular even now is to do an Elvis Presley impersonation. Yeah. Okay. It's not about looking like Elvis so much as sounding like him, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, any Beatles tribute band better be able to play the guitar or whatever, you know.
0: And so you then had this you know change of career, but did it automatically include science and engineering? I mean, what was your material like? did you know at, at those in those early days, did you stay away from your sort oh, of no, day no. job I, for material or, no, I, or, or I tried all sorts
1: of I tried all sorts of hilarious engineering jokes that didn't go very well. <laughs> uh, uh, the thing was, uh, I was a mechanical engineer I was from you know, I was born in the U.S., it's your it's your home country. You're loyal. What can you do? This is where you're from, and I got really discouraged. Uh, the United States decided to stop teaching the metric system in school, in elementary schools, primary schools, and it was decided arbitrarily with sort of the arrogance that um, the U.S. was was better at everything anyway, and you know we put people on the moon and this and that. And then we created, the U.S. automobile companies created two of the worst vehicles ever thought of, the Ford Pinto and the Chevy Vega. And uh, I got discouraged. I was very I'm not joking. I was very concerned about the future of the United States. I was a young guy and I was living in a new town. So I was what we call a big brother. This is where you... um, You hang out with a kid who doesn't have a father for some reason. And it's through a charitable organization here we call United Way. I did that. And then the other thing I did, I volunteered at uh, the Pacific Science Center in Seattle, which is very much like a very much, much smaller scale thing uh, compared with the London Science Museum. And I would pour liquid nitrogen around and uh, lift Uh, pickup truck, big trucks with uh, a system of ropes and pulleys on a big long uh, I-beam and talk talk to visitors about what they were seeing in the exhibits at the Science Center. And uh, that was a lot of fun for me. And I realized also that young people are the future. I mean, this sounds like some sort of commencement speech trope, but it's a true thing. We got to get kids excited about science and math. If we're going to have a future as a species, let alone as a country. So uh, I did a couple jobs, video jobs for, and this is in the US, the Washington State Department of Ecology. And so Washington State, being one of the westernmost states, doesn't just have a department of fish and wildlife or fish and game. No, no, it's got a department of ecology. It's so hip. And so we did a thing called Fabulous Wetlands, about the importance of wetlands. And Washington State, if you're familiar, it rains all the time. It turns out you actually save money by not building on wetlands because they soak up floods. They're big sponges that actually preserve drier land around them. And so anyway, uh, I realized this was really a, a cool thing to be doing, a fun thing to be doing. The thing about boating safety, Washington State also had a problem where the water is very cold. And so there's an enormous number of boats. In fact, the the name of the baseball team is the Mariners, you know, the sailors. Uh Uh, And uh, anyway, people fall off boats and the water is cold and you take a deep breath, but instead of being air, it's a breath of cold water. And then there was this trouble. And so we uh, did, my colleagues and I did a video about that and it was cool. So then um we had a in the US in a different era, we had something called the Children's Television Act. And this was national legislation to require three hours of educational programming every week on television. And I just got to tell you, in Britain, where you have the BBC and civilization and <laughs> a liberal democracy and so on, this would be obvious. but in the US, If you own in those days, if you owned a station group, as it was called, it was just a license to print money. I mean, you were just, it was just a great business to be in. To take three hours every week to educate, this is an outrage. You can't, I won't be printing money for three hours every week. Okay, so Jim and Aaron, the producers I worked with, and I just had this the right idea at the right time. And uh, on when I was working on the comedy show, there was a week where one of a guest did not show up. Now you know when you have a, a talk show. Well, if you have a podcast, what makes it go is the guest. You got to have guests, or it's just you talking to yourself every week. And so the story is lost in antiquity. Was it Eddie Vedder, the lead singer from the band Pearl Jam, a Seattle band? Or was it uh, Geraldo Rivera, this notorious report, uh, television reporter? Anyway, this person didn't show up, so we had to fill six minutes, which on television is a long time.
0: It's a long time, yeah. yeah
1: and so, oh, well, Bill, why don't you do that stuff you're always talking about? You could do some sort of science. You could be, uh, you could be Bill Nye the Science Guy or something. <laughs> I went, you yeah, know, that's a good idea. <laughs> so anyway, the first. The first week I did the household uses of liquid nitrogen because we've all got liquid nitrogen around. Of course, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was funny. I mean, you, you have celery that's gone limp. You get it frozen. It's uh, like celery again. You hit a, an onion, a frozen onion with a carving knife and it, it makes a sound just like breaking glass. And then the payoff is where you roast marshmallows in liquid nitrogen. The word roast being a charming turn of phrase. And when you chew it, If you, with practice, because I was working at the science center every weekend, uh, you can get steam to come out of your nose, which is, come on, this is fantastic. <laughs> and so uh, that one thing led to another. And then eventually we were approached by here in the US, the National Science Foundation and another very large organization you may have heard of called the Department of Energy Government Organization. And both of these uh, government uh, entities have the problem of getting young scientists and engineers in the pipeline, as it's called, recruiting young people to come work at the Department of Energy and uh, National Science Foundation. And so we were just in the right place at the right time with some very creative people. Jim and Aaron just have this gift of being able to hire the right people, man. And so we did this show in a warehouse in Seattle and people still watch. There's a third generation of people watching the Science Guy show. It's amazing. It's amazing. It
0: is. It's great. But that's the power, isn't it, of... Um... Of, of seeing and being enthused by somebody who obviously enjoys what they're doing, which you do, and, and knows the science and background. It's not just an actor. It's somebody who actually does know just, it. And I think there's a difference there.
1: So I say all the time, you know, people say, you know, I don't know if you ever look at um, Twitter, but some people are very opinionated. When you read. <laughs> that's an I understatement. You, I don't know if you notice that, but a big <laughs> thing is, Bill Nye's not a scientist. He's just an engineer. What do you mean just, <laughs> hey, just a minute. I took eight semesters of calculus. What do you want from me, man? I uh, I uh, uh, took, you know, uh, design of mechanical components. I took nothing. It's all physics. It's all classical physics for four years. God, What do you want from me? Anyway, uh, at my 10th college reunion, I claim this is relevant. I went to my 10th college reunion and Carl Sagan, this very well known astronomy uh, astronomer, agreed to meet with me for five minutes. I wrote him a paper letter. Some of your listeners may remember this technology. It's a uh, plant based information storage. And uh, he, uh, he said, I understand what you're doing. It sounds good, Bill, but focus on pure science.
0: Do you think it's a shame, though, that you didn't or or that there wasn't also a parallel Bill Nye, the engineering guy?
1: uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, we did a show called Structures, which is about structures and tension, compression and neutral axis and sort of uh, things that are true, whether you're a mechanical engineer or a physicist. And then we did do one show about computers which really I like to describe as a show about uh, what nowadays might be called computer science, where it's all based on switches and binary arithmetic. And the faster the switch is the better and a way to store all sorts of information, including alphabets and words using just ones and zeros or ons and offs. And so I, uh, no, I think doing an engineering show is not going to stand the test of time. Way but you never left
0: it behind though, did you? Because Oh no, I'm
1: still a dinker around her of engineering her. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: And and I read that you'd actually had invented you've done a, a taken out a patent on a, a a particular type of ballet point.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So you guys, this was just something that occurred to me and I think the patent will be superseded by better technology. But here's how it goes. We did a show on bones and muscles on a science guy show, bones and muscles, bones and muscles. And so we went to shooting a piece, uh, a video piece at the Pacific Northwest Ballet, the Seattle Ballet, which is very well-respected ballet. And um, uh, there are all these young women with these crazy injuries. People are 19 years old, 20 years old with, you know, I won't say crippled, but with two or three surgeries before they're 23 or four. And I realized that toe shoe had not changed in centuries. So uh, this was in the Pacific Northwest also is where Nike is from, the shoe company. And I just realized that you could make a better point shoe, for crying out loud, by putting uh, some features under your phalanges, as it's called, the 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 opposite side from your knuckles. And it would work and everything, uh, but it has to be custom fitted. And there's so much tradition that it never really got embraced. And I think now what will happen is dancers feet will be scanned. And then through additive manufacture or 3D printing ballet or point shoes will be made for each dancer. I think that technology is coming very rapidly. And the other thing about point shoes is they're literally put together with flour and water; they're paste. And uh, for those of you who are dancers out there, you know this. But for the rest of us, you know, they a woman only wears her shoes for one performance, and then they're broken down. The shoe is broken down; it can't support. They can't get up on point as readily.
0: And so didn't this,
1: yeah, yeah. So this will all change. I mean, this is going to change when somebody with an idea shows up. The problem is that the quantity sold is really small. If you go yeah. to the shoe room, as it's called, at the, at the New York City Ballet, I mean, it's just packed with shoes. <laughs> it's just shoes and shoes and shoes. But compared to the number of shoes sold to people around the world, it's very small. But it still fascinates me the whole thing that this thing, the toe shoe, hasn't changed in 200 years. Uh, and it's a real, even now, uh, With all the emphasis on women's athletics and stuff, even now, many, many of the sons of the daughters of my neighbors uh, really go through a ballet phase. They really like it. And many of these teenage women, girls can get up on point. And that's just like it's a rite of passage. It's something they learn to do. And so there's still a market for it, I guess is all I'm saying.
0: That's, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I wondered whether, you know, your you, your mind sounds as though it's constantly always is working. I mean, during this pandemic, particularly, well, obviously within the UK, there had been early on, there had been a, a call out to engineers to think in terms of coming up with Inventing a, a new type of, of ventilator because there was a, you know, we we're worried obviously about shortage of, of ventilators. There's a lot going on in terms of, of engineering and making vaccines that are at a much faster pace than than you would normally do. I mean, do you see this as a time where adversity, in a way, that that science and engineering sort of comes to the fore and people start to 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 realise the role that it plays? in society
1: well as we say yes of course people realize uh the importance of science everything like we're able to have this 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 podcast across a continent and an ocean my goodness and it's just it's like a day at the office and uh, that's
0: right 6000 miles away yeah
1: yeah and so along this line i am involved with uh this company that's making a what we believe will be a better face mask. And it's through Nick Graham. If you know the, the, uh, the brand Joe Boxer, do you remember Joe Boxer?
0: Yes. Yeah, it me. was
1: men's underwear. I, I don't know you very well, but I bet you don't wear a lot of men's <laughs> underwear. <laughs> no. uh, not there's anything wrong with that. Anyway, uh, he did very well, I guess, as with his Joe Boxer line of clothing and he retired. Then he got tired of being retired And now he's back making clothes and he and I have worked on a mask. And so I'm doing my own podcast called Science Rules. And then we have every two weeks, we do a special edition, Science Rules Coronavirus edition. And we had Michael Oserholm, who's very in the U.S. He's on the television all the time. Uh, He's at the University of Minnesota. He's an epidemiologist. And he said, what we need is. Hey, in Britain, do we use the expression N95?
0: Oh, yes, yes, Yes. for the sort of medical uh, quality masks. So it's
1: it's something that blocks particles, no particles. Uh, 95% of particles, 300 microns and bigger, are blocked. Uh, And, you know, the coronavirus is tiny, 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 but it travels on droplets of water in the air, in your sneeze and cough and so on. And so uh, he said, Mike Holstrom said, "What we need, you know, if I paraphrase, damn it, we need, we need a mask that is N95 capable that can be washed a hundred times." Well, we've got a mask that we can wash fifty times, and that's so that's pretty good. Yeah, that's so it's a start. Good. Yeah, and it's using this material that my understanding was developed in Czechia, formerly Czech Republic, formerly Czechoslovakia. And then it's integrated in Nick Graham's just skill with uh, fabrics and textiles. And you know cutting on the bias, as it's called, putting angles in, and when you're in engineering school, by the way, one of the things you compute is the optimum angle for fibers to make a hose have the maximum strength and flexibility. Anyway, Nick Graham's very skilled with this. And so uh, we're working together on this and they should be available uh by what we'll call the middle of august you know two two and a half weeks from now they it should be <gasps>
0: that's amazing well oh, we'll that,
1: see if people yeah. like them and people may not like them and so uh, but my, people don't
0: like wa- washing the washing these masks uh on a on a regular basis i think that's that's uh it's the key oh, that's so, a great yeah, yeah. That, so that, that's what important. you want to do
1: is just be able to throw it in the laundry with everything else and then you'd have a stack of these masks and it would just be something you put on but I work. think,
0: as you as you say, it's it's that having that sort of pr- protecting against those particular particle size that's important because so many people are wearing masks that you look at and you just think it's it's not actually doing much good Anything. in terms of the material, yes. So, and you don't want to say it, but, you know, you do think, ah, really? But, but yeah, no, that that's great. So for, you know, any young budding engineers that are listening to the, this interview and they hear this lovely mix that you've done, you've obviously kept your engineering th- throughout your career as you've made a very successful media career. What would you say to somebody who's, who's doing engineering and, and does have this performance side to them this art side which which a lot of engineers do have because they are very creative well that's the thing do they follow what
1: dream do they follow well that's the thing everybody you look around the room or the car or the park or wherever it is you are right now everything you see in what we call the built environment came out of somebody's head everybody everything Somebody thought of, somebody thought of that shape and size and color and material. And those people are almost universally engineers. So uh, I claim engineers are very creative inherently, and you can make jokes about their clothes, quite reasonable, but everything you see came out of somebody's head. And that is a worthy thing. And, you know, it's a big thing now, you know, we have in the States, everybody's talking all the time about STEM, 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 science, technology, engineering, and math. And there's a big emphasis you'll hear all the time, STEAM, science, Mm -hmm. technology, engineering, art, and math. And my feeling is, well, yeah, yes, I hope so. Not only do you make something, I hope you make it look good. And so, be uh, so called user friendly. Anyway, what I tell everybody is follow your passion. If you like building things and making things, follow your passion. That's where you bring out the best in people, is when they're passionate about what they're doing. And so, uh, I mean, if you're making airplanes and don't think airplanes are cool, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, on the other hand, having art without science behind it without uh, intent is good. I mean, but the only intent is to influence people, make them feel a certain way. That's very valuable. And we need that to be sure. But my claim is that engineering is where you combine your passion to evoke an emotion in somebody and solve a problem and make something. And, you know, we all take it for granted. I mean, we have just having running water and sewers is just an extraordinary idea. (laughs) My goodness, you pull off to get something, to get a a water main that falls just a few centimeters over a few kilometers, which is quite common. is really difficult. And yet uh, we do it all the time in engineering.
0: Well, Bill Nye, science and engineering guy, as far as I'm concerned, and inventor, of course. Thank you very much Thank you. for big fun. sharing your, uh, I don't think I've ever heard a career like it, quite frankly. It's, <laughs> oh, careful what you it's, wish for. It's sort of it. crazy. It's crazy, but in a good way. Yeah.
1: So everybody, look, this pandemic is so closely analogous to the Spanish flu of 1918. And the reason we're all here and having this conversation is because our ancestors lived through the pandemic of 1918. And so if, if you want to live through it again, you've got to keep yourself safe. We all have to take care of ourselves. So wear a mask and wash your hands, people. Don't make me come over there.
0: Thank you, Phil.